If Chris Nolan cut his films like a normal film, they would be six hours long. <laughs> no, 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 no. No more three plus hour movies without an intermission. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting old. I need to pee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My bladder isn't what it used to be in my 20s. I'm Mark Ferdinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I too am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. This week, he who sucks the most attempts to con his way into retribution. Then we visit a very strange new world as we get lost on Scavenger's Reign. And finally, what we're fanning over. You've got this. Lower Decks wrapped up its fourth season with a literal bang in old friends, new planets. Mirror discovers Nick Larcano's plan to run a fleet of rebellious junior officers behind a giant force field and armed with a Genesis device. In order to rescue her, the Cerritos must disobey Starfleet orders and get help from the Orions. I gotta say, Lower Decks is best when Mariner is kicking ass, and when she karate kicked a Genesis device, I was kind of in heaven. Yeah, I love the moment where it's like, this dude sucks! <laughs> He's an idiot! <laughs> yeah, I knew the boom was coming down at some point, because she doesn't just go along with things for her own safety. No. I mean, we just saw it in the previous episode. She's prone to danger. Yeah. She's not just going to sit there and do this guy's bidding. Yeah, no, hell no. This is a case where Mariner's rebellious nature actually works in the favor of everyone. <laughs> and I loved baby Mariner. I love that she was full of energy and excitement the way every young adult should be, right? Uh, but it was also kind of tough to watch because we know there's a deep sadness under her facade now. Well, I mean, that's life, all right? Life is going to come and get you, and it's going to take a little bit of your innocence away from you. But I was right, Mark. I need to gloat. Mariner was an underclass cadet while Wesley was at the Academy. So I nailed it. Yes. So let's say she's 18 there, right? Yeah. So 13 years later, she would be 31. Yeah, just about. I always figured she was in her early to mid 30s in lower decks because I always felt that she was at least someone that had fucked up her 20s and she's gotten a little later start again in comparison to Boimler and the rest of the Lower Deckers. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that she's hanging out with 20-year-olds. Yeah, but so did I when I was 30, but then I was getting my master's where half the class was in their 20s. <laughs> when I was 31, I was a dad, and I was hanging out with all the much older parents at that point. I was a young father. Kids, kids escaped me, <laughs> much like... Jean-Luc Picard and James T. Kirk. Oh, wait, actually, it didn't. <laughs> Maybe I'll have a son that'll show up 20 years from now that I won't even know about. <laughs> what a twist that would be. What a twist. It's in everything. <laughs> and then it would be Ryan and son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get your own theme song. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, what I really liked about this episode is that it, it, it's like the culmination of Mariner's arc, her fear of failure, her rebellious nature. She matures in this story. She's still Mariner deep down, 
But having her say she believes in the mission is, I think, critical for the character at this point. She really means it. But then again, you know, she's always believed in it. But in this episode, in this moment, there's weight to when she says it, because it's almost an affirmation. She finally believes in herself again, and she can now see her potential. She can move forward in her life, and maybe she can have the career she spent so much time self-sabotaging. Like I said last week, it's a dark impulse that I get in her. I think it's very relatable. She's the daughter of a Starfleet Admiral and a Starship Captain. I mean, talk about pressure, just internal pressure. You know, yeah. regardless of whether her parents put any on her. And then Sita's death, her survivor's guilt, PTSD from the Dominion War. But she doesn't need to be self-destructive is something she realizes in this episode. And she's actively trying to stop destruction. But being Mariner along the way, you know, she's working not to blow shed up by blowing shed up. So, yeah. <laughs> which is completely Mariner. <laughs> Yeah, I was a little disappointed, though, that Mariner decided to reframe Cito Jax's death as a worthy one. You know, I said last week that her death was a useless tragedy, and I will say the same this week. Dying in a silly spy mission is not dying for what she or Mariner believed in. Starfleet really did fail Jaxa in the worst possible way. Well, here's something larger that I think Star Trek in itself has yet to really address and it's this notion that death has to be honorable and i'm not just talking about the 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 fucking viking klingons right yeah i'm talking about why did yar have to get a better death in yesterday's enterprise i love that episode don't get me wrong it's one of my top 10 in next generation and i love denise crosby i wish she never left the show absolutely but whenever i hear fans say oh she died an unworthy death in Skin of Evil. And I'm like, no, she didn't. She died doing her job, going first into danger, protecting the away team. She died doing her duty. And anyone that's duty bound, anyone that's in the military, if they were going to die, they would choose to die with duty and honor the way she did in that episode. Mm -hmm. But we don't get to choose our deaths. And this notion that characters that we see in fiction should always have some honorable, meaningful death like Spock or Kirk falling off a bridge or (laughs) Cito Jackson here. There's nothing honorable about death. It's just a fact of life. We're all going to die. And we don't get to choose what that death is going to be. It's just going to happen to us. And the notion that in Star Trek, all the characters must have some sort of honorable death is bullshit because that's just not life. And I get that this is fiction. But it's also naturalistic in the way it portrays the dangers that these people have faced. Yeah. I mean, no fan ever bitches about any of the damn red shirts who die in the apple. And like, there's like a hundred of them that die in the episode. <laughs> Kirk just keeps sending them to their death. <laughs> Rocks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't see the point in making excuses for Starfleet. I would rather just see a better Starfleet than keep harping on the mistakes that it has made in the past, trying to make sense of them, trying to rationalize them, rather than just moving on. Because in my opinion, oftentimes when Starfleet makes a mistake, it's a mistake of the writers. And I would rather just ignore that it happened. 
I know that uh, that people who live inside the universe really need to make it all reconcile, and I'm just not one of them. I think I disagree with you a little bit on that. I mean, I like the exploration a little bit of the flaws in the system. Maybe it's the journalist in me, having spent so many years investigating the fundamental flaws in our own <laughs> system. Mm-hmm. I do get the idea of loving that there's a system that works. And I get that. And I believe in that. I'd like the system to work. Um, But I also like the exploration of that it's not always perfect and that there are mistakes that are made. I don't think we need to harp on them. We need to learn from them and move on and try to make things better and improve. But I think examining the flaws makes the universe somehow a little more naturalistic. I always like to think of Star Trek, not as utopia, but utopia in progress, that in Kirk's time, it's it's okay. In Picard's time, it's better. And I'd like to see like what you said, that each show, it gets progressively better. Yeah. Just as a form of entertainment, though, I don't know. I just don't want to hear about the Dominion War anymore, for instance. We can forget about it. I am going to agree with you on the Dominion War. I'm over that aspect of Star Trek history. So yeah, in general, I love this show, but this finale, it wasn't really for me. And I want to make it clear that I didn't think it was bad, but it just didn't appeal to me because it just contains so many tropes that I've complained about here multiple times. And not everyone is going to agree this stuff was a mistake, and I won't argue with them. It's just in a show so brimming with the kind of Star Trek that I love, This contained a lot of Star Trek that I didn't quite care for. The first thing off on the top of my head is that I think Lower Decks is best when the references are skin deep, and we've discussed that a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, This episode was not that. It didn't just rely on bringing back plot points set up in Next Generation, which I don't mind every once in a while revisiting a story and seeing where it went. But this had a lot of connecting the dots of two other episodes, and then it pretty much recreated the end of Wrath of Khan shot for shot. And look, you know what? I know Wrath of Khan is the best movie ever, but... No, it's not. (laughs) We've seen it copied and homaged so many times. You've got Nemesis, Into Darkness, and the first third of season three of Picard. That was all Wrath of Khan. I just feel like that movie's gotten enough recognition. We even did an entire segment during Picard about how Wrath of Khan needs to not be the template to do good Star Trek stories anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that kills me about that is, and it's not that I don't like Wrath of Khan. I do love Wrath of Khan. I love Horatio Hornblower. I love Master and Commander. I love high seas military adventure fiction. I love the Wrath of Khan. It's not my favorite. I don't think it's as good as some other movies, but I think it's a good entertaining popcorn flick. That being said, we got to stop holding it as the bastion or the bar of which Star Trek movies and stories should be told because it undercuts the greatness of the Star Trek format. Star Trek, unlike any other format, is the most flexible you'll get in pop culture fiction. It can be high adventure. It can be serious, pondering science fiction. It can be social commentary. It can be a Western. It can be a horror. It can be all these things. 
But to always limit it in this view that it has to be the wrath of Khan is detrimental to the growth of the franchise. Yeah, it's depressing to think that we would ever have to get another Nebula chase battle again. There are other more creative space things that you can do with ships. There's other interesting phenomenon in space that you can leverage to create compelling space adventure and tension and drama and action. Like the black hole in the uh, one of the Gorn episodes of uh, Strange New Worlds first season. That was done pretty well. Yeah, exactly. That was very interesting, right? We're doing something that Star Trek hasn't really done. And there's a lot of them. A, a gas nebula that is really just a, a metaphor for a submarine chase. That's overdone. It's cliche. It, it's past its time. There are really way more interesting things in space that you could scientifically use to create an interesting dilemma for your Starship crew. Yeah. The other thing that bothered me was having another pointless disobeying orders subplot. Uh, it didn't make sense when they did it twice in Strange New Worlds this year. And it didn't make sense here. If Starfleet had said yes to Freeman's plan to save Mariner, the whole adventure would have been exactly the same. It didn't really add anything to the story except to make Starfleet look stupid and Freeman look like a maverick. And there's no reason to make her into some kind of rogue like they have tried to with all the other Star Trek captains, even though their past histories don't reflect that. At some point, they have to become rogues, you know? Yeah. And then there's the obligatory, since you did it for good cause, we won't punish you scene at the end, yeah. which is just meaningless. There's no repercussions. And there should be repercussions because you can't take a carrier-sized weapons platform for a joyride yeah. without something happening to you. It's a big deal. Yeah. I've said this before. Imagine an American Navy captain taking an aircraft carrier into enemy territory against the wishes of the government. It would be insane. It would start World War III. Hell yeah, it would. This is another one of those Star Trek tropes that I think probably is past its expiration date. Yeah. I, I get why you use it. It's, it's, it's a common thing. It, you don't see it in only in Star Trek. You see it in cop dramas. You see it in any procedural drama where eventually, to create tension and drama, the characters must either go against orders or whatever, or jurisdiction issues and things of that nature that create easy ways into tension and drama. Are there other ways to create similar drama? Possibly, but I wouldn't presume to tell the writers how to do that. The thing is, is that I think with the rogue captain, there isn't really any drama. It, it doesn't add anything. I really think that in all the examples that I've seen of Star Trek doing the, this year, the story would have carried on exactly the same with permission than without. And there's no real drama in whether they're going to get in trouble at the end, because like I said, it's always forgiven. I think also the other issue is, is that it's done so frequently. It becomes kind of like a, oh, okay, we've seen this before. We know how it ends. Yeah. But you know what? This is all okay, because overall, this was an incredibly strong season, just as it has been in seasons before. We both love the addition of Talyn, and I'm super glad she's going to be staying aboard the Cerritos. This is the great thing about episodic television. This one episode has no effect on my enjoyment of the other nine that came before it. They may not have ended things quite to my liking, but it's still an incredibly strong yeah. season of Star Trek. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the strongest. Lower Decks is consistently good. 
it is consistently hitting the mark. Even in an episode where I may not have liked a few things or I may not have laughed at a few jokes, but overall, the focus on characters, the constant examination of the relationships to one another, the episodic nature combined with the little sprinkling of a story arc each season. It's almost like just a hint of a story arc. It's not even like a heavy thing, right? I think it's a brilliant show. I think all of the writing is brilliant. All of the voice acting is is top-notch. Everything in this show fires on all plasma conduits on a weekly basis. Yeah, for sure. It is pound for pound my favorite Star Trek series after The Next Generation. I love where we've left these characters at the end of this season. Even Boimler got his moment after four years. He got to sit in the captain's chair and actually captain-y stuff. Yeah, I think Lower Decks uses the campsite rule. They have left these characters in better condition than when they found them at the beginning of the season. Yeah, and I love that even though we get this cliffhanger with the consequence of, of Tendi bluffing her sister, it's still a victory because Tendi has this like, I got this. This is going to be okay. I'm going to fix this. Yeah, for sure. She has a confidence now that she didn't yeah. previously. And I am very much looking forward to where Tendi's story is going to go next season, if there is a next season. Mike McMahon made it really clear last month that Lower Decks Renewal is very much up in the air. So watch this season and then watch it again and then watch all the other seasons. Yes. We, we don't need the best Star Trek in production going the way of Prodigy. No, no. I want to see more Lower Decks. I want to see Lower Decks get at least seven years like the old 90s shows. And I don't want it to go away. I want this Strange New Worlds and Prodigy to continue for many more years to come. And longer seasons. And longer seasons, yes. And that is actually something that is being talked about. I mean, I don't know about in Star Trek's case, but it is very much after the strikes, very much there should be maybe a a renaissance of episodic television and longer seasons again. Yeah, and there's no reason why you shouldn't do more of this show. I can't imagine the budget is very high. It's a semi-hand animated program, but a lot of reuse of assets. It's not like they're sitting there drawing every frame one at a time. HBO has a new beautifully hand-animated series out called Scavenger's Reign. An accident on a cargo ship leaves five of its crew stranded on a planet teeming with all kinds of bizarre alien life. Each of them must navigate through venomous plants, monstrous predators, glass storms, and their own guilt and regret as they make their way back to their marooned ship and the cryogenically frozen crewmates they left behind. Like Loki, we're reviewing this show at its halfway point, and we'll discuss it further after it wraps up on November 9th. So we're only talking about the first six episodes today. So Mark, you're familiar with the science fiction artist Wayne Barlow, right? Yeah, I've seen some of his stuff. Yeah, he did the the guide to extraterrestrial creatures from across science fiction literature, like, you know, Dune and some Ursula Le Guin stuff and Clark and all that stuff. Uh, and then he had a, a book called Expedition, which was about 
the evolution of creatures on a far-flung alien world. Mm-hmm. And he also created the Third Space Aliens for Babylon Third Space. Hmm. Well, this show is a Barlow book come to life. The alien life is, well, fucking alien. Yeah. This is the most original thing I've seen in a long time in terms of science fiction. Alien is alien, and it's weirdly so. Yeah, Scavenger Rain is probably one of the most impressive works of science fiction I've seen on TV or film. It's managed to show us an environment that is really bizarre and original, and it's done so with incredible style. Other properties have tried to create immersive alien ecosystems with varying levels of success. I'm thinking of the Avatar films or the game No Man's Sky or even that old show Earth 2, but none of them quite match this as far as inventive and wild visuals. No, not at all. It's like... Eon Flux fucked heavy metal, fucked the Barlow book. So (laughs) this is the baby that came from that. Just watching five minutes of of the first episode, I could see a long list of influences. Mobius immediately sprung to mind. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. With the muted colors, the sort of rounded shapes of everything, the wild landscaping. Mobius, yeah. And the stippling, so much stippling. yeah. Uh, and I picked up on Aeon Flux's body horror, yeah. as you did. Um, and the character design is very European graphic novel looking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely has a Mobius feel to it. But the thing that I think makes the show most successful is seeing the kind of quiet beauty of a natural landscape. And I think that that's the influence of Hayao Miyazaki. And you wouldn't think that because so much of Miyazaki's work is serene and inviting, uh, but it also has a reverence and dignity for, you know, the order of nature. And even though this landscape is kind of antithetical to human life, it's beautiful and it's mysterious, even when it's trying to kill you. Yeah. What I like here is that the animation has a certain poetry in it. Right. Like Miyazaki's work, right? Scenes and shots linger. And we don't have this brow beating narrative pulse constantly pushing the story forward that mm. we often see in science fiction televised media. There are moments where the show lets the atmosphere of this planet breathe to make us feel at one with the environment, to make us feel like we're there. We have these cut scenes where it's just these little creatures doing little creaturey things. Yeah. That don't add anything to a narrative pulse, but add to the mystery and the wonder. And and I feel like a lot of science fiction sometimes forgets the wonder of it all. Mm-hmm. The immense yep. spectacle of it in favor Mm -hmm. of this, like, we got to get to the next mystery box to solve the next thing, to get to the next part of the story. We don't take time anymore in live action, certainly, to let the story breathe. And not even just in science fiction. I think it's also in in regular contemporary stuff. There used to be scenes where you just have people just driving from place to place, and they'd just be sitting in a car. The the feel and the atmosphere of, of the environment is there. But we don't have those anymore because, you know, scenes got to be quick. We got to get in. We got to get out. We got to get to the next thing. We got to get to the next puzzle. We got to get to the next line of information. We don't let stories breathe anymore. And this show lets things just be for a while. 
before we move on to the the next body horror moment. Yeah, that's my criticism of Chris Nolan movies is that they're cut like trailers. <laughs> Nobody has the ability to reflect on what was just said before the next line pops yeah. out of somebody's mouth. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> breathes in those films and it just I can't I can't deal with it. Which is odd because in The Dark Knight it's such a long movie. I know. <laughs> and yet it moves like it's like a trailer. <laughs> the characters and story do definitely take a backseat to the environment, especially at first. And I was totally okay with that. I would have watched this show if it was nothing but six hours of people solving problems with plants and animals around them in an almost Flintstone fashion. Yeah. But by the third episode, we're really attached to these characters and their lives before and after the crash. Uh, with very little material to work with. No. You, no. you still love these people. You still hope that they're going to get through. It's very efficient in the way it handles character and character story. Uh, it, it gives us a, enough without having to hang a lantern on a lot of it. Like Cayman yeah. is a perfect example. We know he's traumatized by whatever events happened on the Demeter. And we know he has this attachment to this woman, and we know that the relationship has been complicated and fraught as he's being manipulated by this parasitic symbiote that for some reason needs Cayman to survive, right? Yeah. And it's just completely creepy. But <laughs> you want to see this guy make it through <laughs> and get away from this thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is getting more and more complicated as, as things go on. So let's get into spoilers officially, because I'm sure we want to discuss some specifics. So Cayman is a mid-level bureaucrat who just wanted to impress the company with how fast he could get their machinery to them on time. And he has found himself with this baby-faced monster that so far seems like the only sentient life on the planet. And it's manipulating him through telekinesis and images of his ex-girlfriend. So there's this emotional manipulation going on with him that is really kind of clever. You know, it, it's, it's almost like the salt vampire and Professor Crater. Yes, exactly. Crater's own paradise. And it's a sign that the creature is intelligent because uh -huh. you can't pick out emotional moments in a, somebody's life without understanding what's behind them. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I really love is that this creature that is obviously intelligent is just using Cayman to get the food that it needs and to settle scores with other members of its clan. Because technically, you know what? That's what intelligence is for. It's to help us survive. And this show acknowledges that even superior intellect is just part of nature. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't have to be something that we recognize. No. Because it's still alien, because we still don't know what motivates the creature. Sometimes alien is alien, and we're never going to understand yeah. it. Another thing that I really liked was how this show is handling a machine becoming self-aware. Because usually in sci-fi, a computer just suddenly becomes sentient, like Skynet or the Enterprise-D or Nanites or Exocomps or something. Oh, crap. The Enterprise-D did become sentient in that one stupid it episode. Did. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> With the, the train. With the railroad train. Oh, my God. <laughs> that seventh season, boy. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean, it's 
<laughs> it's it, computers always become self-aware just because they were on for long enough and they learned enough stuff. You know, it's like my hard drive has terabytes on it. So it's going to look at that and go, ah, I like chocolate ice cream. <laughs> it's never going to happen. You know, I mean... <laughs> God, I hope my computer doesn't use my internet browser history to become sentient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. According to Terminator, every internet server out there should be figuring out how to use the nuclear missiles to save itself. Yeah. But here we've got something new added to the formula. We've got this robot, Levi, who is the companion to one of the uh, survivors named Ozzy who becomes self-aware because of some kind of alien goo getting into her circuits and is taking advantage of the personality that is written in there. It's adding to Levi's hardware. It's upgrading her to do something that she couldn't have done otherwise. And Levi is running around discovering things on her own, realizing that she has desires and feelings. And instead of freaking out, Ozzy just accepts it. And I love that. Yeah. And we can see the the turmoil in Ozzy when the baby face monster tears apart Levi in that yeah. one sequence. Yeah. I do hate that they decided to to kill poor Levi in this last episode. There was a lot of gr character growth there and probably more than anybody else on the cast. And it may be gone for the sake of what is essentially an emotional twist. So I'm hoping that the alien goo puts her back together again before the finale. Yes, yes. And we have to mention that we were only halfway through it, even though yes. more episodes have dropped since we started watching it. And the thing with Sam and Ursula, the whole, he, you know, he, he had a literal golem created out of the, out of whatever alien bit him. And Ursula is even Ursula, Ursula anymore, because she got infected with a bunch of stuff. And then she comes out of that pit and she seems normal again, but is it the same person? Like, I've been wondering that since that episode. Hmm. There's just a lot to unpack visually every episode. It's great work, and I, I look forward to seeing the rest of it and talking about the rest of it. Yeah. Like I said, you know, this is the most original science fiction property I've seen in a long time. And people watch it so that they'll make more original science fiction work. We need more originality. And one disturbing thing that I found out about streamers is that they only care about viewing numbers before 29 days. Yes, yeah. After that, they don't care if you've watched it or not. It doesn't factor into yeah. whether they're going to renew it. So you've got to get out there and you've got to watch these things Which... as they're coming out. Don't save it for binging. Just watch it now. Yeah, which unfortunately is bullshit because then that adds some pressure to you to <laughs> consume as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's always kind of been on us to keep shows alive, but boy, is it more than ever now. Yeah. So every once in a while, we actually like to tell you what we like as opposed to critiquing or reviewing things that we watch. Uh, and in a, a segment we like to call fanning. So this week, Mark, what are you fanning over? Well, geez, I, I kind of thought we already did a fanning over Scavenger's Reign. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. We had nothing bad to say about that. No, no. Nor did we really have anything bad to say about Quantum Leap last week. We're, we're actually being really nice lately. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I'm fanning over 
a small budget sci-fi comedy film called Jewels. It came out earlier this year and it is just starting to hit streaming. It stars Ben Kingsley as a forgetful old man named Milton who finds a crashed UFO in his backyard one morning. An injured traditional gray alien played brilliantly by stunt woman Jade Kwan makes its way to the house where Milton nurses it back to health. The alien eventually regains his strength through a steady diet of daytime television and apple slices. It doesn't speak and only has one facial expression, but somehow through simple movements and mere physical presence, Quan gives the alien a personality that is unique and often hilarious. Milton can't keep the alien secret for long, and eventually two elderly women, played by character actor Harriet Harris and comedian Jane Curtin, form what I can only describe as a thruple with Milton as they try to figure out what the alien, whom they name Jules, needs to get back home. The plot isn't the most original around. There's shades of E.T. and Cocoon and even ALF. But what stands out in Jules is the characters and the relationships, how children deal with aging single parents, what it means to have the threat of losing your independence hanging over your head, and the difficulty and importance of making friends and forming communities in your later years. I can't rave enough about how funny and enigmatic Quan's alien is. It's really something to see, and it steals the show. But the communities that her character fosters are the real star. Jules is available to rent or buy on nearly every streaming platform. It's very much worth the $4.99. Oh, that's interesting. I do like this idea of exploring people later in life. We don't really... We don't really get that a lot in in our fiction, especially our popular media. It's always focused mm-hmm. on people who are younger. I remember there's a there's a bit in one of the Babylon Five script books where JMS jokes that Warner Brothers would have been completely fine if there was a space anomaly that hit the station and everyone was in their twenties. <laughs> but they would have loved to re, you know to, to reset the show and everyone's in their 20s and they're all hot and they're all sleeping with each other you know this obsession with with youth well i'll have to check it out i've seen the trailers and i love all the actors who are in it so i'll have to i'll have to check that one out yeah and it's it's one of those movies that's really great to go into not knowing much which you know yeah. it makes me sad to have to explain so much of the plot but it's already out of the theater if you haven't seen it you're going to need some more convincing. Yeah. I hope I've convinced you. <laughs> All right, Ryan, what are you fanning over this week? Well, I just recently finished the second season of Our Flag Means Death, which I'm not going to give away too much spoilers, but this season just basically continues the troubled romance of Steed and Ed, aka Blackbeard. But what I really appreciate about this show is that it's unabashedly queer and sex positive. No one bats an eye at two dudes kissing or making out or falling in love or just having sex. Everyone has their own sexual agency. Sex is talked about just casually and there's no stigma attached to it with these characters. It is a show that is desperately needed at a time when queer and sex positive representation seems to be dwindling again. And I really want to urge everyone to just watch this second season so that they get a third season, even though this season sort of leaves everything in a nice, like if the show never came back, you'd feel satisfied at a complete story. But I think it's really, really critical at this time that we support shows 
that have this kind of representation because we're going to see a contraction of this. We're already seeing a contraction of it. So I'm really going to urge everyone, please, 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 please just watch Our Flag Means Death so that we can get another season or more shows like it. Yeah, Our Flag Means Death is such an incredible show. It's, you know, again, one of the few shows I can get my daughter to sit down and watch with me. She loves it too. I am not a big fan of period pieces, but I kind of like this new genre of period pieces with modern dialect in them, like Apple TV's Dickinson. Yeah. And certainly this. I just think it's really funny. It's clever. And this show handles it really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's colorful, wild, it's weird. It's about relationships, even though they're pirates. It, it, it's less about plundering and more about relationships. Or plundering each other's hearts, I should say. <laughs> and exploring yeah. each other's bodies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work at sockpuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter and at Mark2000 on Blue Skies. Yes, and I am at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter for as long as it lasts. And also Ryan Thomas Riddle on Blue Sky. Want to do the Colvert Starburst with us? You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Shipful of Jerks and Shipful of Jerks on Blue Sky. Mm-hmm.